0: review from last week and then we'll continue on with with our study here today. Uh, We've been talking about the the condition of the world uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned and all the sin that had filled the world and how that men's minds had become so corrupted by uh, the power of sin. That it had created a situation where the world was filled with darkness. It had come to a point when all they thought about was evil and wickedness. That was all that they had on their minds continually, the Bible says, continually. Evil and wickedness. And so I think that the reason that this is recorded for us here in Genesis, this Description of the state of man as he had lived upon the earth in sin. Unrestricted. Unrestricted by law, unrestricted by anything else. That man was alone to himself. Whatever he thought to do, that's what he did. And I think that it allows us to see where we would all end up in our world today. If we were left to our own sinful devices if that was still the situation in our world today that's what would happen it would be filled even more so than it is and it can be even worse trust me believe me our world today can be a whole lot worse than it is it's bad but it could be a whole lot worse it's only the restraint of God that prevents it from being that. It's, it's God working through his people that helps make our world at least livable and endurable. This place could be worse than it is today. When we're allowed to choose how our lives will be governed based only upon our whims and fancies which are controlled completely by sin. When sin is what makes all our decisions for us. That's when everything uh, just falls apart. We get to see how deadly and how dangerous life lived without moral guidelines can end up. So that's why I believe that that story is included for us, because it lets us know how bad things can actually get without God. And we need to know that. We need to know and make the adjustments that are necessary to prevent that from happening again. When we read about God's reaction to what the world had become left on its own, uh, he seemed to be completely justified to us uh, as far as his plan that he had set in motion to destroy the world that he had created and to start over again. He seems justified in that. And yet we we read what the Apostle Paul wrote to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And Paul there talks about the fact that where there is no law, sin is not imputed against the the individuals that are living in that state of sin. In other words, their sins are not held against them. They're not judged for their sins. And so when when we look at that, and we go back to that story because there was no law yet. God hadn't placed law upon the earth yet. And so in the light of what we saw happening in the world, even though it was a disaster, according to what Paul tells us, they can't be judged based upon their actions. And yet here, here is God pronouncing judgment upon the world. He's going to destroy the world. So how how is God going to justify himself in destroying the world when he can't judge them for their actions? We came to the conclusion that it's because God does not judge us based upon our actions. He judges us based upon our hearts. Because the heart is where our actions come from. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. In other words, as a man thinks, that's what he does. So our actions are based upon what we think. What our hearts are telling us. That's where the actions come from that we commit, whether good or bad. It's based upon the heart. So God judges us based upon what's going on inside of our heart. Scripture tells us the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Only one can know our heart, and that's God. He's the only one who can read our heart. We don't know our heart. There have been situations where I've been brought to make decisions and and I made bad decisions and I never would have thought I would have made those decisions. Why? Because I didn't know my heart. God knew what I would do, but I didn't because I didn't know my heart. We don't know our heart and we don't know the heart of one another. That's why we're poor judges. Because all we can do is base our judgment upon what people do, and that's not necessarily a good barometer of who they are inside. I remember uh, one of my pastors one time um, was having to deal with a situation concerning one of his uh, one of his saints in his church, and. Uh, it was not a pleasant thing for him. He was going to have to try to uh, have a confrontation. Basically, is what he was thinking. And so, anyhow, he got down and he began to uh, to pray about it. So we had a service, and in this service, um, this individual came forward for prayer, and. Later on, he confessed to uh, when he's talking to me. He confessed to me that he said, "I didn't even want to go up and pray for him." He said, "He said, I, I, I," he said, "That's a horrible thing." He said, "I know it is," but he said, "I didn't even want to go up and pray for him because he said I prayed for him so many times and nothing changed." Anyhow, he went up and he said, "The instant that I laid my hand upon this person's head, God spoke to me and showed me their heart." And he, he broke down and cried. He said, their heart was so full of love for God. He said, I, I, I had never seen that. I didn't, I didn't know that. You can't know what's on the, in the heart of people. Their actions can betray who they are. That's why we have no right to judge them based upon actions. We have no right to judge at all. God knows the heart. His judgment is perfect. His judgment is perfect. And the best thing we can hope to do in our lives is to begin to see people through His eyes. To let Him show us others through His eyes. That wouldn't be a bad thing to pray for. Praise God. Then God doesn't just merely judge these people who are constantly thinking about evil. He doesn't just judge these people's heart and make his judgment based upon that. He goes beyond that place of reckoning. He finds one man who hasn't succumbed to the tune that sin was playing, and that man was Noah. The Bible says he found this man, this one man out of millions, he finds one man whose heart is different. Noah. He lived in a world that was constantly pressuring him to conform to their way of living. And yet Noah wasn't buying what they were selling. They were putting pressure on him to conform. None of us have ever had that happen, have we? Sure we have. There's always pressure to make you conform. When you stand out, there's always going to be somebody that wants to make you conform to everybody else. Because you become the irritant. You become the reminder. Sometimes you create guilt in their heart because they know they should do better. And we don't want to think about that, so we want you to become like us. Pressure. He lived in a world that was pressuring him. But Noah dug his heels in when it came to living a righteous life. He didn't let that sway him, move him, or change him in any way. He remained true to his righteous way of life. He could be said to be an unmovable object of moral integrity. That was Noah. Noah. what a great man what a great man and i'm sure that noah suffered abuse at the hands of the opposition it's possible that there was some physical abuse that he may have been made to suffer i remember hearing stories about the old timers who pioneered this this pentecostal experience at the turn of the century, 1900s, they would hold meetings and people would throw rotten eggs at them, throw rocks at them, throw rotten tomatoes at them. They would come up with all kinds, throw firecrackers into the middle of their services that they were having out in Brush Arbors. Anything they could do to disrupt what they were what they were doing, constantly abusing them and. With Noah being in the type of situation that he lived in at that time, I'm sure that there was some kind of abuse that was going on, whether, I think there was some physical abuse, but there was definitely some, some mental abuse, psychological abuse, that he was made to suffer. I'm sure they called him some names that weren't very nice. But yet, in spite of all that they had tried to do, They did not change his position and neither did it alter the way that he continued to live. Now that's saying something. That's saying something about Noah. Noah's choice to anchor himself to those things that were right had so moved the heart of God that he granted to him the notable distinction of his being a perfect man in his day. a perfect man in his day. That word perfect carries the meaning of one who is undefiled in his integrity or one who possesses an incorruptibility. Imagine that. Incorruptible. There was in Chicago years ago I'm not saying that it's still not that way, but years ago it was run by mobs. And there was a, a man that was brought in named Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness was given a special duty. His job was to fight this mob that was controlling Chicago. And they gave him a lot of leeway On what methods he could use but as time went on he found a group of men who were incorruptible a group of men who felt the same way about crime and what it was doing to the city as he felt and they became known as Elliot Ness and his untouchables these men remained incorruptible they couldn't be bought off They couldn't be bribed. They wouldn't be scared away. They were intent upon maintaining law and order in Chicago. And they made a big impact upon that whole situation. They actually brought down one of the biggest crime lords, Al Capone. Noah reminds me of that. His fight against corruption, while he himself remained uncorrupted. Not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. How many of you have found that over time, sin can just wear you down if you let it? You ever get tired of fighting it? It's a struggle. It wearies you. And sometimes you get so frustrated when you see you've done everything that, you've, that you know to do and nothing changes. Everything looks like it remains the same. There's still all the corruption, there's still all the, the, the filth, the depravity. We're immersed in it all around us even though we're doing what we know to do and we're trying to do our best to fight against that and to not let it have an impact upon us. Sometimes it just seems like it's an impossible situation, the the mission impossible situation. There are seasons that we go through where it seems that, that hell's going all out in its plan to destroy us. I remember, this has been a few years back, but I went on a, a fishing trip, a little camping and fishing trip, with some uh, with some my friends from, from when I worked at headquarters. And um, we went out to this remote area. We'd brought our own canoes. And we were gonna float this nice little river and do some fishing and stuff. And so we got in there and it was a perfect weather was perfect. Wasn't too hot, nice breeze blowing, sun was shining, the stream was crystal clear, and we found some spots, we were stopping and fishing along the way, having a great time, just enjoying ourselves, catching some fish, and just just it was just an idyllic situation until we came around one bend and we saw some cows up on the the little hillside there and they were grazing right there beside the stream. And, you know, it's one of those pictures that you want to get your camera out and take a picture because it was just beautiful. And when we got alongside of where those cows were, there was, this is no lie, there was a cloud of deer flies that were so thick, it was black. And this cloud of deer flies came right over to where we were and made us their lunch. I'm talking, you're you're talking a cloud, literally, swarming around you. They stung like bees. They They left whelps on us. And so we, we passed this place. But guess what? The deer flies followed us. They were relentless. You know how most flies, you just twitch a little bit and they'll fly off? You could twitch all you wanted to. You had to literally kill them to get them to stop biting you. And, and this is no lie. And this is not an exaggeration. When we got back to our campsite, Which was about four miles farther down the stream. They were still following us, by the way. The bottom of our canoe was black from the flies we killed. It was a nightmare. It was relentless. And there are times in our life when it's like we are attacked by the deer flies. When the pursuit is relentless, it, is, will, it just will not let up. It will not stop. And you know what we had to finally do? We had to finally ignore them. Grit our teeth and just keep paddling for four miles. I mean, it, it wasn't doing us any good to kill them. The, the more you kill, the more there were. And they weren't going to stop. And if you let that situation get to you, a couple of the guys in the canoe ahead of us, they lost it. They literally, one of the guys literally stood up in the canoe and started waving his oar back and forth, just screaming at the top of his lungs because he'd had enough. It drove him nuts. He jumped in the water, and guess what? As soon as he came up, the flies were right there again. It can drive you nuts. It can drive you crazy. The only solution is to grit your teeth, forget about the flies, and just keep paddling. And eventually you'll get back to your camp. And we met, a uh, there was a, a couple that had come out to fish and they were camped right they were in their boat right there beside our campsite where they were fishing we come down the stream and these flies are still following us they go over and they start hitting that boat's fresh meat and they took off because the, and the flies just went right with them so they saved us they were our salvation that day but the uh, one of the guys lived down in that area and he told us later on he met that same couple and then he said they fought, those flies followed them all the way back to I don't know how many miles down the stream but they were still following them in that boat. I'm talking these things are relentless. And that's the way life can be when sin begins to, to get stirred up. It will not stop. It will not let up. It will drive us nuts. It will drive us crazy. But we cannot allow that to happen and Noah there's no doubt he had reached the end of his rope several times but somehow he gritted his teeth and he just kept rowing he kept moving forward he kept going where he needed to go now we struggle with things like this for you know it can be months sometimes maybe a year or two where it just seems like everything falls apart and nothing goes right. Noah lived with that for 600 years. Deal with that for 600 years and think of, will that wear you down? You talk about a guy with integrity and with grit. He dealt with it for 600 years and he stayed true. He dug in and he kept going. Noah was no ordinary guy. No wonder he caught the eye of God. It shows us that Noah was viewed by God as one who was to be considered blameless because of his managing to maintain his integrity and his devotion to those right principles under the most impossible of conditions imaginable. That's doing something. And therefore, God went even further in his Description of Noah. He bestowed upon Noah a great privilege. He was granted the honor of becoming known as a man who walked with God. A man who walked with God. That word walked that's used there is the word halak. And it means to come on continually following. To come on continually following. Noah walked on continually following God. Nobody else was doing it. He didn't have a support group. He didn't have any shoulders to cry on. He didn't have anybody who cared. It was Noah against the world. And yet he continued to follow God. There's only one other soul that's recorded in scriptures having been endowed with that same honor. And that was, of course, the man called Enoch, who just happened to be the great-grandfather of Noah. Noah. And he lived in that same time period. And yet he also was a man who continuously walked and was moved by God. I want to give us an idea of how rare that event was in that day. In the course of man's early history from the time of Adam's beginning to the event of the flood, it covers some 1,786 years. It's a long time. And during that period of 1,786 years, there managed to be two souls who could claim the privilege of their walking with God. Two in 1,786 years. Two men. To help us relate to that time frame, it would be comparable to the amount of time that occurred between the birth of Jesus and the year 1786, which is the time frame for the birth of our country. From the time that Christ was born until the birth of our country, that time frame, two men walked with God. That's rare. That puts Noah in some pretty elite company. So here's Noah. This amazing, unusual man who refused to allow a world that had gone crazy after wickedness to change him into one of them. Instead, he lived his life as a testimony to goodness and to righteousness. He had, in essence, become God's epistle to be read by all of those around him. Paul writes about living epistles in 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 2. Ye are living epistles, read of men. You're our epistle that's being read of men. And here's Noah, and he has become God's epistle that's being read in a world filled with chaos and sin. Do you think Noah stood out? How bright do you think Noah's light was in his day? The greater the darkness, the brighter the light. It's never been that dark. And there was never that much light. His light must have blinded them. God's man of the hour, Noah. These people saw with their own eyes who they were supposed to be, how they were supposed to be living. And Noah could have left it at that. He could have just lived his life in silence and it would have been testimony enough. But that's not the way it goes. Let's read in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse number 5. It says, And did not spare the ancient world, talking about God, but saved Noah, one of eight people, listen to this, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Noah didn't just talk about it he lived it but he preached he preached we don't know how long we know he preached during the time of building it his the the ark but i think noah was preaching long before that time i think noah had been preaching for a few hundred years I think he was telling people for a few hundred years before God even chose him to do this great work. All the time, God was preparing to use this man to save his world. For several hundred, it took several hundred years before it came to fruition. But Noah was preaching Righteousness. Preaching righteousness. He preached to them concerning the value of that chosen lifestyle, held that it, it held not just for him. The value wasn't just simply for him to enjoy, he wanted to share it with his world. He wanted them to become persuaded. As he had become persuaded that it was a better way of life. And can you imagine preaching for hundreds of years and not having one, one convert? (laughs) Nobody listened. Nobody listened. Noah revealed to a godless and a lawless world what God required and what he desired for everyone. So that they could be brought back into a relationship and have fellowship with God. That's what Noah wanted. That's what the world needed. He became a sort of spiritual yardstick by which the others could measure themselves to see How far away from being who they should be, they really were. Noah told him, you look where you are and you look where I am. This is where you got to come. I'm not going that way. You got to come this way. Noah became the yardstick. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 7. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 7. The writer says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, and listen to this, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The actions of Noah brought condemnation upon the world. So that in essence, it's telling us they were without excuse. Weren't any laws... Nothing was written down. But here's one man that's showing them how it should be done. And because of his example, he became the yardstick by which others were measured. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. Because, see, Jesus becomes our yardstick. That's why we're not supposed to measure ourselves among ourselves. We measure ourselves by Christ. He becomes the measure that we try to live up to. Not one another. And just as the light of Christ shined in his world in his day, so did the light of Noah shine in the earth in his day. And because none other than Noah and his family believed that and followed that, they condemned themselves. They condemned themselves. That world of sinners that eventually disappeared by the means of a flood had first been witnessed to and warned about their imminent destruction if they chose to stay upon the course which their lives had been set upon. And they were offered a way in which they could escape that end. God was doing everything that He could to get them to change, He made a way for them to save themselves. He's doing the same thing today. He has given us every chance possible to save ourselves. He did, didn't he say, save yourselves from this untoward generation? We have something to do with our salvation, folks. Jesus. Made everything possible for us, but we still got to do something. We still got to believe it and accept it. And that was something that those in the day of Noah did not do. They did not believe and they did not accept. They condemned themselves. They condemned themselves. But yet that shows God reaching and God still wanting to give them an opportunity to change before destruction came. Again, Noah preached for, I think he preached for several hundred years. And in that time, word gets around about this weirdo. You don't think it does? Oh yeah, it gets around. That world knew. God had made sure that they knew that there was a way. That's the fairness of God. He didn't have to do that. But that's the fairness and the love of God. Can you imagine God loving those individuals who were all they thought about was evil continually. It grieved God, and yet God still loved them and still wanted them to be saved. Still did. And yet God went even further in validating His fairness in this event of sending a judgment of a flood upon the earth as a form of judgment. I want us to consider another possible aspect of of what great lengths that God went to in order to to be accurate in his assessment of the situation that had developed upon the earth. I want us to read in Genesis chapter 11. Try to hurry on here. Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 5 and 6 there. Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And this is talking about the Tower of Babel. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said indeed that the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Then I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 18. And I want us to read verses 20 and 21. Genesis 18, beginning with verse number 20. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is talking about him prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then let's turn back here to Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What do these three things have in common? It tells us about God's justice. In the situation when we talked about Prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, what do we know occurred in that story? God had taken a physical form, came down to the earth, and went to Sodom and Gomorrah himself with two witnesses, two angels. Because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, there has to be witnesses. God does it. I'm... God is so fair. He is so fair. Did he know? A... You can't hide anything. From... God knew what was going on there. He knew it. What does he do? He comes down and he says, I'm going to go take a look for myself. At the Tower of Babel, we have the same... Similar language being used, and I believe that God came down in a physical form, walked among them. There's the the script or the the word there that talks about uh, saw that God saw. That word means not just that He looked, but it's He looked upon and was looked upon, meaning that not only did he see them, they saw him. How can they do that if he's not there? And so I believe that before the flood came, God saw them in their debauchery, and they saw him not knowing who he was necessarily. He listened to their conversation. He took in what was going on. He saw what they did to Noah. He saw Noah preaching righteousness. He took in the whole scenario. He didn't have to do that. He knew what was going on. That's the God we serve. He goes to every extreme to give you every possible chance. If there's a reasonable doubt, you know, there was Abraham, and he's trying to bargain with God. Well, you know, well, he finally gets him down. Well, what about ten souls? If, if there's ten, if there's ten righteous people. In Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city for... God said, you're preaching to the choir, dude. That's what I'm all about. Why do you think I'm going there? I'm not going because I want to see their wickedness. I'm going to find some people who are there who are righteous so that I don't have to do this. And if I can find enough people that are righteous, I won't destroy them. That's God. That's who He is. He is not a horrible, vindictive, angry. That's not God. He goes to extremes to save. He went to extremes to save me. He's gone to extremes to save you. He will go to extremes to save all people. That's the heart of God. That's Him he's more than fair he's more than fair and I want us to pray today I want us to ask God to help us see him in that light to help us know how great his love is toward us toward all people everywhere Let's pray. Thank you Jesus. Ha he love our shadow